in very exciting news, we are playing music made by the band Cordoba. Hey, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate the tunes. Yeah, they're a radical band from Chicago. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I'm your host, Katie Helper, and I'm joined by... Gabriel Pacheco here. And we are the Katie Helper Show, and you can find us on iTunes, where you can rate and review us. You can find us on SoundCloud. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm Katie Helps. That's letter K, letter T, H-A-L-P-S. Gabe is... Gabe underscore Pacheco. Yes. And uh, make sure you join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where you will find bonus episodes and extended interviews, and it just makes your life a lot better. Yeah, if you're willing to subscribe to other things that are less woke than this. Then what are you doing with your life? Yeah, come on. Come on. Get with the program. Get with the program, yeah. And you'll get bonus episodes. You get extended interviews. You get a bonus interview with uh, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, I spoke to David Sirota, the man who made Beto basically come out as somewhat supportive of the Green New Deal. Uh, what did uh, Beto say that he was... Uh, he's he's Supp- agrees with the concept. Yeah, he's supportive of the idea of it, <laughs> which... Um, I mean, it's kind of sad that that's what uh, where people are. Also, Elizabeth Warren spoke and like barely mentioned. She didn't mention Medicare for all, and uh, was asked about it and gave some really big answers. So, we gotta have like David Sirota, who, who I'm I'm happy to help you flirt flirt with the notion of perhaps yeah. maybe coming up with a study to think about uh, the option of, of the Medicare green, for all. Oh, I'm, I'm Medicare for all curious. That's right. Right. And, and Green New Deal Curious. Yeah. Green um, New Deal Flexible. Yeah, exactly. Flexual. Oh, my God. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I don't know if you saw this, but there's a leaked video of her dancing. A 30-second video clip widely shared on Twitter showing New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dancing on a rooftop. And everyone is going crazy. The Republicans hate her. But I think that they actually have cr- a cr- big crushes on her. The male Republicans. How could they not? I know. She's the only good politician. Yeah. one. Well, Ro Khanna also. Yeah. Also a great one. Yeah, this video of her was quote-unquote leaked. But I she- think there should be mandatory dance videos. Every senator or congressperson has to make a dance video. To even get considered for the election. To so get on the ballot. On the, it's got to be on like the .gov websites. Right. I, I agree. To, I need to know how you dance. Right. Well, it's funny because she is so videogenic and photogenic and attractive that it look. I mean, I would like pay to get that kind of dance music video. You would get a PR team to help you make that yeah, dance video. Right. I feel like, you know what she's like? She's like our Trump, but not a bad person. Yeah. In that nothing sticks to her. She ju- she's so good at, at media. That when like Republicans attack her, she has the best zingers back to them. Yeah, I mean, she just uses common sense and she doesn't say things like, well, I'll flirt with the idea of perhaps right. acknowledging the concept of this idea possibly working. Uh, Black lives matter. All lives matter. Right, 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 right. You know, when she got busted, quote unquote busted, if only we all had those uh, embarrassing videos leaked where we look really good. She made another little video on social media where she's like going into her office and they're playing the song War. Good God. Yeah. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And she's lip syncing and then goes into the room and everything she does, she just looks cool. Yes. And the reason I think she's Trump like is because 
none of the attacks on her stick. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's 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 like imagine I'm saying this in a complimentary way, though, not a diss. She's like every the inverse of the equal and opposite of Trump. Well, people are just going to steal that. That's going to be the soundbite, though, Katie. Yeah. AOC is our Trump. Yeah. You said it here for you I, heard it I here first. It. Yeah. Yeah. In the best way. So on today's episode, we speak to David Parsons, who is an historian and wrote the book Dangerous Grounds, Dangerous Grounds, colon, anti-war coffee houses and military dissent in the Vietnam era. And it's about coffee houses and how they were hubs of organizing. And David shatters a lot of really dangerous myths. I love coffee houses. Me too. I, I like love a coffee. like a bean to bar coffee, like a third wave coffee shop. Ooh, I know? like that. Like a verve or a grumpy. I like it where there's a where there's a barista who's maybe done some foam art competitions. Oh, yeah, I've never had that. I'd love to have. You're that. more of a second wave coffee type I gal. I guess so. Yeah. You like that Starbucks. Yeah. That venti. Kind of the Seattle scene. Okay. <laughs> I have like my I like my Gloria Steinem cups. No, yeah, I don't. But that so he's cool. talking about coffee shops. What's There's the other coffee shops in the Vietnam War? What the Vietnam, dude? Vietnam. I was. I'm too young for it, but I loved the movies. <laughs> Contrary to popular belief, guys, <laughs> uh, Gabe is not a Vietnam War vet. Yeah, Apocalypse Now, though, fantastic film. Yeah. Yep. I saw that one. That's Platoon. One. Platoon. Did don't think I saw that. Dead presidents. Didn't see that. Full Metal Jacket. Didn't see that. Okay. Platoon is the one where in the very good movie Naked Gun, that uh, slapstick comedy. Yeah. They are on a date, the couple, the main couple, and they do this romantic montage, and they leave a movie theater, and they're laughing, and the camera pans back, and they have just exited a movie theater playing Platoon. Wow. So that's my introduction to that. Great movie. first date film. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Interesting. I, yeah. You know what's interesting also, Gabe, is that my mom, as you know, because we've spoken to her, my mom's a novelist, and she wrote a book called When You Come Home, which is about three generations of war, and uh, World War II, the Vietnam War, and Gulf War One, not two, just those were not good wars. Hot take, bad wars. Everyone and which one was the, the only war. righteous war? The Gulf War? Protecting um, the tiny... The Kuwaitis? Yes. <laughs> Operation Help Kuwait. Um... I would say World War II was the only good one out okay. of those three. Probably the only good one ever in American history, I think. Because it boosted our economy so much? Well, that and we were on the on the right side. Yeah. And in terms of But it was a coin toss. Toll, it really... <laughs> yeah. If, right. you, if you look at the history of the uh, of Alan Dulles and the OSS and you know, of our financial interests. Right. You could know, have gone either way. Could have gone either yeah, way. Yeah, so we're really glad it went this way. Sure. Defeating Nazism was a good was a good thing. Yeah, that's correct. So we have a great chat with David and then with Nora Eisenberg, my mother, um, novelist and also a journalist. And uh, David and my mom both talk about the first Gulf War. My mom a little bit more than David. Sure. In the wake of the death of George Herbert Walker Bush, we still... There hasn't been that much coverage of the first Gulf War. Some talk of AIDS, which is good. I mean, that's bad. The talking of it is good. Yeah. Um, Iran, the war on drugs. Panama. Panama, that was the thing. Panama, Being yeah. a director of the CIA. CIA, yes. Right. Bad thing. Groping women also. Yes. Yeah. Giving birth to Jeb and George. <laughs> right. Those were crimes against humanity. Um, continuing the progeny of Barbara Bush. Yes. Not a good thing. So yeah, so that that's an interesting chat. And uh, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it a lot. We are so excited to finally be talking to 
David Parsons, who um, you may know him from his great podcast called Nostalgia Trap, The Nostalgia Trap. And I'm subscribed on iTunes. There you nice. Go. Thank you. Yeah. We, lo- we love to hear that. Yeah. And also, you, you guys should subscribe to his Patreon, to the Patreon for Nostalgia Trap, um, The Nostalgia Trap. You know, you could do a little, bo- like, do a combo, like matching funds. Like, you donate to David's, you donate to ours. Yeah. But instead I- of matching funds, you just feel happy. I feel like there's an army of people out there that that are that have that are giving five dollars a month to various yeah. podcasts, and we should exactly. be we should be on that roster for sure. Yes, yeah. So let's talk about your book, which is really excellent, and um, people can de- should definitely get it, and purchase it. And it's again, it's dangerous grounds, anti-war coffee houses, and military descent in the Vietnam era. Get it? Get the pun, everyone. Dangerous grounds. Grounds, yeah. Yeah, I had to that have was a good. In there. I no, had, I liked it. I had other ones, but that's that's the one that made the cut. Yeah, I really liked it. So uh, you should read that, and also you can read a great piece that he wrote at the New York Times if you want kind of like a preview of it as you as you order it. Uh, and that piece is called "How Coffee Houses Fueled the Vietnam Peace Movement." So tell people about your book, your research, and how it applies to today. Oh, okay. Um, Very well, specific I, questions, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I was looking for, and this this kind of goes along with the, the kind of biographical element of it. When I was at yeah. the uh, CUNY Graduate Center uh, starting um, the, the PhD program in history, the, it was a long, long time ago. It was in 2004. And in 2004, there was a presidential election. John Kerry ran and challenged uh, George W. Bush. And there was like the, the Vietnam War was in mm. that election, if you remember. And there's yeah. like, you know, the Swift boat thing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. John Kerry made the like Im- super embarrassing entrance at the Democratic National Convention uh, to accept the nomination. And like he, he came out and saluted and said, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting oh for duty. I'm John Kerry and I'm. Reporting for duty, and I, it was like just the biggest cringe. Um, and I think that that's part. You know, some some of that kind of explains a little bit of why the Democrats always right. lose. Um, for our I, younger yeah. listeners, could you just tell people what swift voting is? I served with John Kerry. I served with John Kerry. John Kerry has not been honest about what happened in Vietnam. He is lying about his record. I know John Kerry is lying about his first Purple Heart because I treated him for that injury. John Kerry lied to his Bronze Star. I know. I was there. I saw what happened. Okay, so swift boating um, was the phenomenon of uh, a number of uh, GOP operatives who were uh, uh, who essentially came forward with uh, stories that they had they that they had served uh, with John Kerry in Vietnam, and that he he served with uh, less than honor, and that he was actually exaggerating his service. That he wasn't as he wasn't as injured as. He alleged that he was injured, and they kind of succeeded in creating this like doubt about John Kerry's service, and made him look like he was maybe lying about it, even though none of their accusations or charges turned out to be uh, to carry any weight at all. Right, be true um, at all. Yeah, yeah, it was basically uh, just like a propaganda lie, but it worked. And what was crazy about it is George W. Bush ended up looking like the military hero, right. even though he had like kind of skirted out of military service by getting a cushy job in the Air National Guard in Arkansas. So. That's swift boating, and like I think that's become a term in in politics since two thousand four. Um, swift boating is like any effort to kind of like I don't know undermine the 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 the, the kind of veracity of the claims of a candidate. Um, so that's right. But, so yeah, but oh, anyway, sorry, yeah. To, yeah, to go back to like John Kerry, the the the, the kind of legacy of the Vietnam War was right. in the news, and and I I saw that as poisoning the politics. Still, I thought it was wrong to for the mainstream media to just kind of like buy this swift boat story 
but also like the 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 the, the George W. Bush administration used military men and women as props in yeah. their in their imperial war in the Middle East, um, and I, I felt like the Vietnam War had there it was tied up with that, and that the memory of the Vietnam War in particular, you know, there was all this kind of like talk that even since like the, the the first Gulf War. Um, under George H. W. Bush was fought with like the conscious idea that they had to like get over the Vietnam legacy, yeah. right? And so I knew that the Vietnam War was uh, was Vietnam kind of, syndrome, right? Yeah, Is that what exactly. It was? Yeah. yeah, the Vietnam syndrome was the idea that Americans would not support war, um, and, and certainly wouldn't support kind of open-ended missions um, like the, what happened in Vietnam. And so there was this kind of like idea that the whole tr- the whole you know horrific history of the Vietnam War had been papered over and distorted. And and was being actively used by um, by the Bush administration to kind of um, support their wars. So that that's where I, I kind of began thinking about well, m- the military men and women, and who are they, and and were they really as supportive of the war, and the, are, are they really these like kind of like patriotic blank patriotic heroes that they're being portrayed as, or is there something a little more um, going on? And I think that John Kerry you know, was in the news at the time because he was a presidential candidate, but people knew and you saw clips of him in the um, VVAW, which is Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Right. And he spoke, you know, he spoke in the Senate in 1971 very eloquently to like a standing ovation from all these veterans. Each day to facilitate the process by which the United States washes her hands of Vietnam, someone has to give up his life so that the United States doesn't have to admit something that the entire world already knows so that we cannot say that we've made a mistake. Someone has to die so that President Nixon won't be, and these are his words, the first president to lose a war. And we are asking Americans to think about that, because how do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? How do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? And it, like that story made me think, well, there are a whole lot of military men and women from the Vietnam era that are not down with the war. And who, where are they? Where are their voices anywhere in any of this? So that, that kind of made me go down the rabbit hole. And I, I ended up finding a, a, a documentary by a filmmaker named David Zeiger, who was a participant in the GI movement in the Vietnam War. He made a documentary in 2005 called Sir No Sir. It's a great oh, yeah. little, it's, it's one of, you know, it's one of those like, like we talked about like that, like kind of like little like progressive burst of like do- lefty documentaries in the, right. in the, in the 2000s during the yeah. Bush era. It was one of those, but it was one of the better ones because it told us a, a history, like this history of the GI movement, which was, you know, that there were tens of thousands of GIs um, in the army, mostly in the army, but in other branches of the armed forces too that not only like were against the war, but actively opposed the war. Right. Um, and finding that documentary was was what sent me on the on down the kind of um, down uh, uh, to explore a little more of what uh, that movement looked like. And there's a clip. There's like a quick clip in the middle of that film of a coffee house in Texas um, called um, the Oleo Strut. With more and more soldiers turning against the war. A handful of peace activists opened the first of what would become a network of dozens of anti-war GI coffee houses located in the towns that hover near military bases. The dusty Texas town of Killeen, just outside Fort Hood, which housed over 20,000 troops, became home of a GI coffee house known as the Oleo Strut. And it's in Killeen, Texas, outside of Fort Hood. And that that made me think that, you know, what are these coffee houses? 
what what are they about? They're they were about um, they were they were coffee houses that were built by anti war civilians and and active duty GIs who built coffee houses to basically create conversations between um, the anti war movement and the larger anti war movement and um, military men and women that were in the army and in the military. So those coffee houses kind of like I it was it, I was lucky I found a story that no one had heard of and yeah. what I discovered is that there were like dozens of these coffee houses they played an instrumental role in some of the like biggest moments in uh, biggest moments of resistance and rebellion um, during the Vietnam War era in the military and they were kind of like this lost piece of a, of the story and to me like you know we can keep talking about them but like to, uh, the, the main thing I'd want to say about them is that the coffee houses are like the physical evidence that that story that we're told about the Vietnam War and like particularly the anti-war movement hating American soldiers and disrespecting American soldiers and that critique of the war was was like spitting in an American soldiers right. faces all that mythology is kind of, is is destroyed by by the, the the existence of the coffee houses and the and the GI movement which shows you that like you know this the story is detailed and the story is dramatic i mean the american government and the american military were terrified of the left being in the military and they weren't sure exactly what to do about it because they uh saw how popular the left was getting particularly like underground newspapers which were being produced by the thousands um, and distributed on military bases not only in the united states but in vietnam and japan germany and the underground newspapers of the vietnam era particularly the ones that were written and produced um for, by and for military people they're like, it's like an extraordinary archive. It's not just like a couple like flyers or newspapers. It's like they had printing presses. Mm. They put out volumes of this stuff. They distributed tens of thousands of copies of this literature. And you talk about like accessing the left. You know, we have the ability to kind of like, you know, download podcasts, go on Twitter, right. find left ideas. You, you can find them more easily. But during this time, you know, information was much more easily controlled by the U.S. government. And so these un underground newspapers, coffee houses, these were like a lifeline to the left for people that were curious about anti-war ideas, curious about uh, the larger left, curious about the counterculture. Um, and so the, the coffee houses for me are just a way to, to explore kind of how the left circulates ideas um, and how the civilian kind of anti-war movement relates to the people that are actually fighting the wars. Right. So um, can we, what was the most surprising thing, by the way, during your research? Was there anything that really stood out that you didn't expect? Um, I, I think finding out, I, I mean, there are a lot of things, but I think that uh, um, finding out how uh, uh, woke these mm. activists were right. like they were talking about th uh, issues like um, gay people in the military mm. um, their underground newspapers talking about um, talking about the role of women in the military before anyone else was talking about that stuff um, I, I feel like you know when I'm reading these underground newspapers from like 69 1970 it's it's extraordinary to see how forward they were thinking it's almost like I don't know. There's this lost history of how radical the 1960s and 70s really were and how a lot of those ideas, you know, they trickled in the mainstream. We see them present today, but I, I don't think we, we understand how, um, I don't know, how conscientious and how diverse this movement was. People get their ideas about the 1960s and 1970s from like, I don't know, Forrest Gump, you know, right. the Wonder Ugh, Years. The yeah, and all this kind of like, I don't know, the stuff that I was subjected to as a kid. I always thought that they... There was basically, you know, this weird 
kind of Woodstock rebellion right. <laughs> and, and of hippies in the 60s and 70s, which is true. Um, but the stuff that I, I'm looking at, these underground newspapers, they're produced by groups like, I don't know, the YSA, the Young Socialist Alliance, um, which is kind of like, I don't know, it's interesting to see how the DSA rising up today as a force in American politics, because the, um, the YSA and the, and the STWP, the Socialist Workers Party, they were both like really involved in these movements and, and on college campuses. And it wasn't just about kind of like, this image we have of like, I don't know, pot smoking, free right. love kind of thing. They were very serious, dedicated radicals who were thinking very hard about how they could um, how they could stop the war and how they could help the people that were involved in it. And what was the relationship between these coffee houses and people serving in the military? Well, I mean, the coffee houses existed outside of the military. They, they basically came to these towns. So that's a, another part of the of the story of uh, of the of the book is that the the, the U.S. military basically you know occupies uh, hundreds of American towns, and those towns are you know essentially what you would call like a base town. Um, I'm I'm kind of in one right now in in, in California, and mm. and the, the the presence of the military is a really important part of the town. It's embedded, um, it's embedded in the culture, it's embedded in the politics, it's Im embedded in the economics. So like these coffee houses came to these towns, and they were like. Hey, we want to, you know, start a coffee house and put up a bunch of like Bob Dylan posters and you no know, even stuff like um, they had there there was a, a coffee house that came to town and immediately put a poster of Lyndon Johnson with a toilet seat over it so like you lifted <laughs> the toilet seat and Lyndon Johnson was in it. So like they were like trolling these towns for sure. Like right. there was an element of that. So they you know they they were they weren't part of the US military at all. They basically you know set up shop and said, you know, we're a coffee house uh, um that 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 is for American soldiers. And the result was because they were kind of I don't know, projecting a counterculture counterculture image in towns that didn't project that at all. They created a lot of attention. Um and people knew about them. And so the American, you know, the 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 GIs that were on bases when they had time to come to town, they would come to the coffee house out of pure curiosity because these places had they they intentionally you know brought a kind of colorful, loud, um, counterculture kind of um, uh, iconography to towns that were really conservative, and that's part of the the story of the book too. Is the towns fought back? They were pissed, and right. the military came after them. The police came after them. Ultimately, J. Edgar Hoover is going to launch an investigation of the coffee houses. The FBI is going to raid them. They're going to send. Um, you know, all sorts of vigilantes. It's The story is insane. Um, but it's one that I think indicates a little bit of like, I don't know, the, 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 the lie that, that we're told that American soldiers were treated poorly by the anti-war movement mm. um, is, is one that, that's kind of, you know, d complicated, I would say, um, by, the, by the coffee house story. Because you know Nixon. It, it was Nixon, especially when he came in to office in 1969. His his whole kind of ethos was very Trump-like, in the sense of he he was like the real American, and he was standing right. up for the silent majority and the real Americans and the hardworking Americans. And the soldiers were a big part of that. Like he used soldiers and veterans and prisoners of war as these kind of icons of American suffering. Um, and to to kind of. For, for Nixon, you know, it was important to create that image, but the, the, the veterans that were against the war 
they destroyed that image, you know, and they destroyed the idea that there was a consensus among all soldiers and that they were all against the anti-war movement. It was much more complicated than that. And the anti-war movement's relationship to American soldiers, um, much more, much more complicated than, than any of the stories we tell. When these coffee shops uh, started, you know, uh, getting established around the country in different towns, was there any coordinated effort among them or was it sort of uh, spontaneously people getting the same idea and then creating a network? Um, it was, I mean, it, it ultimately was one guy who is still alive. Um, Fred Gardner is his name. He's up in Alameda, California. He, he was the guy, he had, he was a, a little bit older. He was a, a, a person who was, um, He's the Ray Kroc. Yeah, he was, exactly. And he was writing um, for, like, popular mechanics in in Manhattan, and he was really against the war and becoming more and more radical. And he felt like... Um, he felt like there needed to be a connection between the like rising anti-war movement and counterculture. He needed, he wanted that to be in in the American military. He wanted to give um, soldiers, especially who were stuck on bases in the United States, um, a, a, a kind of place where they could go and access the anti-war movement. So he like tried to get support for it. Ultimately, like opened it himself. Um, the the first one in Columbia, South Carolina, the UFO Coffee House, opened that in January 1968. But he get, um, it, it captured the attention of the movement, the organized movement, which at the time there were a couple like major organizations. But the one that was, I think, the, the biggest besides SDS, the Students for Democratic Society, the other was, would be a, a group called um, the National Mobilization to End the War in Vietnam, uh, better known as the MOBs. Um, and the MOB people who included people you may have heard of like Tom Hayden um, yeah. and Rennie Davis, uh, a couple of others, they they approached Fred Gardner and said, we'd like to you know help create more coffee houses. And they launched something called the Summer of Support in 1968, which ended up putting about seven or eight more coffee houses across the country. Um, and those projects got off the got off the ground. Some were more successful than others, but there was a, I mean, there was an umbrella organization called the United uh, States Servicemen's Fund or USSF, which was founded by uh, and created by people like um, Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky, um, and uh, a person you may have heard of who's in the GI movement called Howard Levy, who's a doctor, a, a dermatologist from Brooklyn. Um, nice, who's, nice Jewish uh, boy. Yeah, oh, he's great. Uh, Howard yeah. Levy is amazing. Um, and he's he's still out there in Brooklyn, and he's told his story on the podcast, I think, at one point. But Howard Levy was the, one of the first people to go to jail for refusing service in Vietnam. He refused to uh, be part of the propaganda efforts of the U.S. government where they were going to set up a couple dermatology clinics in South <laughs> Vietnam. He said it was bullshit, and, and it actually violated his oath as a, as a doctor oh, yeah, um, right. to be part of it. He was arrested. He served three years in prison, um, but he was uh, while he was in prison, there were people that were part of the anti-war movement visiting him um, in, the, um, in the military prison that he was held in, and they were planning the coffeehouse movement and other kind of um, actions to help grow the anti-war movement within the American military because they saw that as kind of the key the key wing of the anti-war movement was getting to the people who were actually going to fight the war, getting them to refuse. And that was a major, major mission. I mean, a lot of this kind of dovetails in with the, with what was going on with socialism at the time because place, um, you know organizations like the SWP, 
their their ethos at the time was, and you've, you've probably heard of this strategy, they were like sending people in to go get blue-collar jobs and so they could organize workers. Salting, so were, right? Is that yeah. the term salting? To salt? Yeah, exactly. So there's like, you know, that's ha- happened in the, the mining industry in West Virginia. It's happened, it happened in the steel industry. And there were people, um, especially in the Socialist Workers Party, who were essentially joining the American military so that they could organize against the war from within. Um, and that phenomenon is a is is you know another book I think that uh, yeah. um, entirely like that because the American government was totally aware of all of this. They knew, <clears throat> and as soon as they figured out that people were um, that people were engaged in in socialism, they kicked them out. But there's like you know it took them a while to catch on. Like there's a guy um, <laughs> one of the one of the one of my favorite figures in the book is a uh, a, a black soldier named Joe Miles who's drafted at the age of 21. And he, when he's drafted, he writes a letter to the draft board and says, I'm, a, I'm an out-and-out out socialist, communist, yeah. organizer, and if you draft me, I'm going to organize a revolution from within the American military. And they, they, they accepted him. They brought him in anyway. Yeah. And, and within like a few weeks of being on base, he had organized meetings with like hundreds of black soldiers with fists up saying they weren't going to fight in the war. And they got rid of Joe Miles quickly after that. But the the point is that they that the American government was caught off guard by the depth um, uh, and 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 the kind of size and range of these anti war activities by the the soldiers that were part of their military. I got a good idea. Oh, I got a good idea for the name of that book: Salt oh. of the Earth. Beautiful. I've You're never welcome. heard that before. I, I, it rings with something, but I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, I have a question. How, yeah. Like, how does this tie in? to uh, the military today mm-hmm. and so any partnerships or connections that, you know, left-leaning uh, people such as ourselves that have, uh, me, I've, I don't ever play with guns. Yeah. And I've never, and I'm <laughs> very, very difficult to organize into anything. Yeah. But when you have a highly structured institutions like the military, like what what's going on there, uh, you know, around socialism or, just yeah, being aggressive I mean, because my my even my impression of people in the military is that it's so much easier the default is a more conservative mindset yeah and and i mean i, I think that's true i mean i'm currently I actually teach um history courses on a military base here in this town um and, and that's the first time i've done that over the course of the last few semesters and i mean i think that's i think that's right i also think that there's I don't know. There's 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 a pretty wide there's a pretty wide range of politics within the American military, and things have changed a lot um, in the years since. I think the main thing is that the draft is gone, and mm. they've kind of you know they've they've hidden military service and and turned it into something else, and and that something else is is you know essentially a a, a working class job, and right. so and so the result of that in terms of socialism in the in the American military, God, I I wish you know I wish we had more. Um, more of that and i wish we had more of the like i don't know physical institutions where the left can be found because you know that's part of it too is that we we don't need the coffee house culture is kind of gone you know right. in the years since i mean it's it's starbucks, starbucks. yeah it has <laughs> it's kind of and not only that but you think about like i just saw this like commercial for like what like capital one has these banking cafes oh now oh so it's like <laughs> i've seen one of those in uh, manhattan yeah, yeah yeah and so you're like you're you're and they're like come in and like hang out and talk about like you know fixed rate mortgages and stuff right. like that and you're like what the <laughs> fuck is this because like coffee house when you said like the words like oh the coffee house crowd in the 60s right. or 70s people knew what you were talking about like left wingers that like drink coffee hang out in these places probably smoke weed and like talk about left wing shit 
And like that, that culture being gone, I think is is uh, is dramatic. And in terms of the, the the military, I mean, there's a little. There have been coffee house projects. I think there are still a few, inclu- including one called Under the Hood Cafe, which I think closed, but it was open for many many years throughout the kind of Bush years and everything like that. I think that you know we're we're at a point now where you know we've been at war in Afghanistan for 17 years. You know, longer Jesus than, Christ, uh, yeah. So, so like people that were born at the beginning of the war are now like eligible to fight in it. Um, and right. you know, that, that, I mean, that's, that's five years longer than the Vietnam war went on and, and that the, the, the kind of impact on American society that it has is, is profound, but one that people, I, I think, you know, don't think about as much as they were thinking about it during the Bush years. And so, you know, in terms of politics, I don't know, I would, I would say there's one, one guy I interviewed on the podcast called Nate Bethea. He has a great podcast called A Hell of a Way to Die that exp- oh, yeah. that explores um, leftism in the American military. And they have a lot more to say about like what that actually looks like on the ground. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it's I think it's a the, the, the larger kind of the, the larger kind of turn that we've had is that, you know, those uh, the, the American military service has been separated from the public um, in a way that. That makes it almost impossible to start these conversations up because it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a portion of the American public that's smaller than than it ever was before. And so, what is the relationship between um, class and military organizing, both then and now? Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's like this there, another another part of this this kind of American memory thing, this idea of that we remember the Vietnam War um, wrong, is that this idea that the people that were against the war um, were kind of spoiled college right. kids, like middle-class kids that were all like going to Berkeley. Um, right. And that's just not true. Um, and in fact, like most of the sociological studies we have show that like the further you go up the ladder of like, the more money you make in the 1960s, the more likely you are to support the war. And the further you go down the economic ladder, the less money you make, the more likely you are to be against the war. And you think, well, why is that? And it's because the American working class were the ones that were fighting the war. It was their, right. it was their sons that were being sent, and it was their sons that were being maimed, that were being asked to do the killing, and they were the ones that were dying. So like the working class, you know, the has a, a kind of natural um, connection to anti-war ideas and has forever. I mean, if you know your Howard's in, you know, that's where that energy comes from. And it's been like the ruling class and the middle classes that have been the most um, supportive of war. So like that part of it is important. And I think that, you know, it, it goes back to Nixon again. There's a really great book by um, Penny Lewis uh, called Hard Hats, Hippies, and Hawks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's about kind of this idea that, like, like that even, like, American labor, like the, the blue-collar guys, the, those right. were the guys that supported the war the most. The guys with, uh, you know, the real Americans, you know, Sarah Palin's real Americans with, like, a, a yellow hard hat. Right. Um, and, that, and a lot of that come out, comes out of an incident that happened right, out of, right after Kent State um, when four students were shot to death by the National Guard in May of 1970. Just a week later, there was a gathering um, of uh, high school and college students who were holding a vigil um, in support of the students who had been killed. They were holding it down in um, near like uh, Wall Street, basically like near Zuccotti Park. Um, and this was in 1970. Um, and the, the, one of the um, major construction unions uh, basically had, you know, a, a, pre- a president who was very pro-Nixon, very pro-war. He 
um, organized some of his workers uh, to go down and confront those students um, that were that were kind of holding this vigil. And the result was what was called the hard hat riot. And we're like um, a couple hundred construction guys showed up and beat the shit out of these kids right. um, and beat them with like, like these are like high school kids, young kids. And the, the result was like this image that like the blue collar guys had finally stood up against these snots, against these like little right. brats. And Nixon, like the next day, Nixon has like a hard hat on his desk. Oh my God, yeah. You know, he's like totally doing the Trump thing where he's like, these are the real Americans. Except the, he had the kind of self, uh, let's see, what would you call it? He didn't put one on. Trump would have put one on. It has right. Put one on, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. He would have put one on and like got behind the truck and done that yeah. like face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So yeah. So Trump or Trump, sorry, Nixon, Nixon very much, try, you know, tried to cap capitalize on this image but like what what uh penny lewis's book i want to give her credit because she like really did the research to look at the unions what she learned is that like i don't know some of the bigger unions like the uaw they were pro-war they were like for the democratic party you know the democratic party were the at that time the major architects of the vietnam war they weren't going to go against those rulers but the the smaller trade unions like the 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 kind of heart and soul of the like i don't know the rank and file working class in america they were against the war, and there are tons of unions that, like, you know, were against the war loudly and proudly, and were um, were not just kind of against the war in terms of being, um, you know, ideologically against it. They did stuff, you know, they were active against the war. So, you know, that idea that that um, uh, uh, the the that the class element of the people who were against the war affects our memory and makes us think again of like, it, to me, when I hear. The kind of I don't know. You see it even in the Ken Burns. I don't know if you went through eighteen hours of fucking no. Ken Burns, but like you <laughs> see, yes. yeah, <laughs> you what a waste see, of time. Yeah, you see yeah. that image. They, they at, at the end, dude. The, I'm dead serious. At the end of the like eighteen hours of Ken Burns, the last word they give the anti-war movement is like this woman who's crying and says she's sorry uh, for being against the war oh and she wants to apologize to the American soldiers for like being so disrespectful. And it was just kind of like that that idea still matters it's still there and so when i hear like i don't know um the intellectual dark web or whatever those right-wing fuckers are out there the jordan petersons the joe rogans the people who are attacking college students now and call you know with this image of like spoiled sjw's marxist college students i hear all of those stereotypes who are kind of like trying to force left-wing ideas and anti-war ideas into this box instead of recognizing them as what they are which are extremely popular uh positions across the board particularly across the board uh for like the 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 99 percent of the people who are like you know ordinary working class people in america so and you talk about like you know positions winning political positions be against the wars you know there's one of them that's i feel like that's an early i mean it's it's funny because this is when class kind of was talked about but this is almost an early class-based example of weaponizing identity politics totally yeah of course yeah and 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 i mean he's Nixon is weaponizing this kind of like identity of the blue collar worker, right. even yeah. you know, and that like this guy is like a, I don't know, a, a stereotype um, of of like this New Yorker guy that you know has the. Uh, it goes all the way up to like the, the um, I don't know, the nine eleven era, right? But was, this, was, yeah. Yeah, this uh, it macho seems like it's used up yeah. by both the Democrats and the Republicans. Like yeah. the Republicans have this aesthetic. Uh, understanding of identifying with the working class, mm-hmm. with like a Joe the Joe six pack, like a plumber 
Tight. Yeah, it's character. always a it's always a white guy, even though like the character right. of the American working class is definitely like more women, more people of color. Like, right. let, I think we can get rid of this like Joe the plumber shit, but like it's still right. there. Yeah, it's still definitely operative. And then you know, being in New York City, uh, I'd say a lot of people who would see them so identify as liberals or progressives or whatever uh, will still. Uh, snub their noses at the idea of uh, working class people. Yes. You know, or working class people are still invisible. Or biggest. You know, your delivery, the delivery guy is invisible. The the dr- Uber driver is invisible. All of these people are like beneath or uneducated or, you yeah. know, where. So it is. So why? Um, yeah. So there's no class consciousness in, within the Democratic establishment right and if there is it's that it's to repeat that stereotype which i think is an important one which like oh the trump voter is like some dumb redneck somewhere that's like really racist and stupid and it's like no he's not like the trump voter like is more likely to be someone who like owns a dealership and has a couple houses (laughs) right right. yeah exactly Um, and, and so like it, it, it's, it's a useful stereotype, you know, and it's, and it's one that like, I think that that thing of like the watching the democratic party turn into the party of wall street. Um, and then it's still like, uh, you know, what relationship do they have to the working class? Cause they've turned their backs on the working class. And, and so that, that part of it, I think is really important. If they want to get back to that, they're going to have to do some, some of the heavy lifting because they, they've created, they've helped contribute to this, um, I don't know, this erasure of the of the working class. Yeah. And uh, when we're talking about elections, it, it, it seems like that there isn't the, there's an entire class of people who haven't voted at all since more people didn't vote right. than voted for right. either right. Trump or Hillary. Yeah. yeah. And, and and I think that's part of it too, is is to understand that, you know, millions and millions of people just don't give a shit. And so right. why you know, why is that? And and you know that the part that that has to be on the political parties. I think that the Democratic Party and uh, and its most loudest supporters just feel like they're entitled to the yeah. vote. Yeah, just feel like, well, it's, we're Democrats, so vote for yeah. us. Yeah, and what's wrong? And if you don't vote for us, then you deserve to lose your health care. You're mm-hmm. a stupid bigot, and it's not on the politicians to win your vote. It's mm-hmm. on you to mm-hmm. vote for them. There's such contempt. There's such open contempt from so many people yeah. who claim to be progressive. Yeah, and I don't know what they want, you know, like <laughs> because their 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 kind of vision. They never talk about policy, you know. Right. They're just. I mean, I I feel like a lot of that is just straight like kind of political bullying that exists in the media and exists to shame people right yeah well <laughs> um, it's funny because voting for them yeah we we think of like wedge what's it called wedge issues like cultural conservatism we think of those as helping republicans which they do right it gets people to vote against their best interests and but it's not even that because often the dems aren't giving you the things that are in your best interest but it also helps the dems right because then they don't have to talk about policy they just make it all about cu- the culture wars yeah and the, the the bad guys i mean trump to, to me it's like the way you talk about trump is important you know yeah and and like to, to talk about trump as like um this guy that's gross and nasty to women and 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 says like bad words you know, and is like uncivil. I think that's the wrong way to go about it. They need to be attacking policy, but they they have a hard time attacking policy because they're part of so many of the policies that are destructive in this country. Right. right. Um, yeah, and I think I think that this, the 
I guess I just saw a clip of um, God that Anderson Cooper interview with uh, <laughs> uh, with with AOC. Yeah, you know where she gave. Um, you know, she she I think she framed it really well when she said that Trump is like a symptom of the problem, yeah. not the problem, you know. And I think that that messaging needs to continue and strengthen as we move forward to, to kind of, um, you know, get away from this personality politics, which which is kind of been driving the whole thing for so long. Um, and, I, I you know, you can't really you can't really get away from that. I think it's important to kind of like that right. the, 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 we're to recognize how the media works now. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we've got to, we, we've got to figure out a way to, to, to get the attention off Trump's kind of right. uh, personal crassness and get it, get it towards, you know, uh, the policies. Well, that's funny because earlier I was saying to Gabe that AOC reminds me of kind of our Trump, but good because she's <laughs> very good at social media. Yes. She's very media savvy people. She drives people crazy. The difference is I think a lot of people actually have a crush on her, and I don't think a lot of people at all have a crush on, on Trump. But I don't they're even both, want to think about it. Yeah, yeah it's just, yeah, they're both very <laughs> triggering of people. Yes, yeah. Um, and they kind of make people lose their minds. Well, one big difference, though, is that she's not lying. With oh, no, not right. at all. Yeah, yeah. Right. So she's, she's the good version. I mean, she's everything yeah. that he is, but the good version. He's yeah. not everything. He is. You know what I mean? He, yeah, it's like I, you put her him through a machine, go from evil to good, and then she comes out. I think that the the Democrats who are looking for this kind of like uh, return to civility, where they're going right. to have some come in and, and be like, oh, thank, like, I mean, you know how they have kind of fetishized Obama. Um, and, yeah. and a part of that is, you know, he speaks so well, you know, and he has yeah. this kind of like, he has this kind, yeah, he has this kind of, yeah, there's that element for sure. Um, but he's also got this kind of like charisma. He speaks to the better angels of what they think America is. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So like when they hear, they, they hear like Walt Whitman in, in Obama. Right. And I think that's a mistake. I think that we should go, I think that the people that are that are using words like motherfucker and they're like saying, yeah. I think we need more of that. Like, we, why yeah. not? Like we yeah. need like a crass nasty unapologetic left right. figure that doesn't give a fuck and is someone who is viral as shit um yeah. and just play that game who cares like we're yeah. in that like we're in the black mirror let's not pretend like politics is anything but entertainment it's like there's that right. element of it and the, right. Demo the democrats are still holding on to this notion that like we're all on the fucking west wing and that like right right it's yeah. i mean hamilton i think has done a disservice oh God, yeah. to all of us in the kind of like trying to breathe life into this notion of the like kind of founding fathers and all that bullshit it's a 21st century dude like we need messaging right and like trump is trump trump didn't i mean he's brilliant without knowing yeah. he's brilliant yeah, you know I what know. i mean yeah. like this guy's a the guy the guy's a fucking moron but somehow he stumbled upon a template that the media loves yeah um and that resonates with people and that keeps him like uh, at the top of this cycle god can you imagine if we had a left figure like that i mean well, I think that's you're what right I, yeah. yeah i think that like ocasio and bernie are kind of the closest things to that and that yeah. they're bold they're unapologetic they're very different obviously one is a anti-charisma charismatic uh, old jewish guy <laughs> yeah from the book from brooklyn one is a you know a very sassy saucy beautiful well they, neither of them happy. fall into compromising civility and that civility right. politics just makes me it, to me the definition of that is not acknowledging a rancid fart yeah right oh, yeah. exactly and, yeah. and, 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 the, and, the, and the rancid yeah. fart is a million dead Iraqis. <laughs> right. You know it's I mean? not, yeah, it's the, yeah. The rancid fart isn't just, it's not, I mean, then you have the opposite problem, which is people who identify the rancid fart, but they say it's just Trump. Right. And they're yes. just like, they're just using curse words against Trump. 
but they don't use the curse words against anything else. Like, and they think that's resistance. Like, as, can you yeah. can, can you imagine a more nightmarish scenario than like Trump losing to someone like Biden and we getting and, and us getting like back, back like, to normal? Yeah, yeah. Like, and everyone and then everyone breathes a sigh of relief that thank God everything's fixed. Yeah, and it's like how could you believe that? I mean. Right. You have to understand that, like, Trump was elected in 2016 because it was a fucking crazy time. And it was a crazy time because we went through eight years of Obama right. um, in which the politics were—I mean, they were stunning. To me, I was stunned by, like, how um, how shitty Obama was, to uh, on a lot of issues. And, like, healthcare was just one of them. There were a million. I was duped—I was not duped. I was distracted, honestly, by the, the racism, like— and I'm not dismissing it, but I yeah. feel like I was always playing defense for Obama. Yeah, well, and the same so... thing happened with Bill Clinton, right? I mean, when Bill Clinton, when they were going after him for yes. getting his for getting his dick sucked, I was yeah. like, "This is ridiculous." I the know, Republicans me too, are right. fucking disgusting. And then I'm like, "Well, now I'm boxed into this position of defending this guy right. when I don't want to defend him." And right. I, the, the same <laughs> thing is very true of Obama. I mean, Obama yeah. was being stalked by Trump in the media during this era. Right. Like, right. And, I mean, I, I, I feared for the guy, literally. Yeah, me too, yeah. Um, I find Obama yeah. much more sympathetic um, and underdogish than Bill Clinton, even yes. though they both grew up kind of poor. But, I mean, there's the race stuff and there's just the... Um, Various things that go into he's the, that. Like, I, I think of Obama as the as he's the T-1000, right? At, like, he's the one that's like the liquid metal, Clinton. Yes. The, the one that's yeah. like even even yeah. better. I mean, he's yeah. honestly one of the most compelling and important politicians of our yeah, era. Yeah, he really is, yeah. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but like... No, it's, da- it's a dangerous thing. Well, his it message is. was always curb your enthusiasm. That's really funny. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really good, yeah. your, Like, Obama's entire thing was like, hold your horses. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Slow down progress or whatever demands. Um. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about going, turning back again about yeah. the Fort Hood Three? Yeah, um, and the Fort Hood Three are are uh, the, so the Fort Hood Three are are uh, a group of three uh, American soldiers who were all I think like 20, 21 years old in nineteen sixty six. Um, they were stationed at Fort Hood, which is in Killeen, Texas. Uh, Fort Hood was one of the major staging installations for the American military to send uh, young men to Vietnam. They decided in 1966 that they weren't going. Um, they, as you, they, they wrote, they wrote um, letters um, to the American government that said, we are resisting an immoral war. Um, and they got a lot of media attention. They had um, a press conference in New York City with a number of major figures from the left they were featured in the New York Times, um, and they were kind of uh, one of the major early moments of what we would call the GI movement. So the Fort Hood Three um, and uh, uh, the Fort Jackson Eight. Um, the, there's ultimately going to be a Fort derivative, Hood derivative. So uh, derivative. Yeah, yeah. For, there's also going to be a Fort Hood Forty Three. There were a lot of those like numbers groups in the 1960s right. and 70s. Yeah, but I'm it was. I mean, but of and, course they're great. Yeah, and like the, it's like a band. Yeah, the Seattle Seven. There's another one. Um, but like the 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 Fort Hood Three were part of um were part were part of the beginning of American soldiers not only like resisting the war and like you know resisting service in it, but making you know it's one thing to kind of just like get out of it, but they didn't just get out right. of it. They made they made a show of getting out of it. They made a statement. Um, ultimately, they were arrested their case went to the supreme court is in the courts for years yeah some of them served a little bit of time well all um, three of the four yeah. three did yeah they did and so 
there, there, the, the Fort Hood Three would have been one of the groups that Fred Gardner, who started the coffee house movement and started the, the whole organization, he would have been looking at them and thinking, "We need more of those." Right. Like, and the, and the left needs to pay much more attention to American soldiers because you know, again, like the, the there is this kind of stereotype that the left kind of called American soldiers baby killers, right? Spit on them, Hanoi hated Jane. them. Yeah, ex- yeah. And Jane Fonda's in this story too. You asked me like, what was the most surprising thing about this book? Uh, finding out that Jane Fonda was like a, a, a massive figure and hero to the left, um, but not only to the left, but the military left, that she um, was part of a, a, a show, like a, a show that she put on with a number of other celebrities like Donald Sutherland, um, who, who, who like put together a show called FTA. Together. Yes. Um, and, and this show is called FTA, uh, uh, Free the Army or Fuck the Army. Oh, which was wow, a, yeah. Kind of, and that FTA show... That that ultimately, you know, toured through the coffee houses. They put on this kind of like Bob Hope style anti-war left-wing wow. review comedy show, songs, and the footage of it is extraordinary because what you watch is like Jane Fonda like saying all this radical shit on stage to like a group of more than a thousand soldiers who are all cheering right, in, in, in uniform with their fists right. up. Mr. President, there's a terrible demonstration going on outside. Oh, there's always a demonstration going on outside, Pat. Yeah, but Richard, this one is completely out of control. Well, what are they asking for this time? Free Angela Davis and all political prisoners out of Vietnam now and draft all government officials. Well, uh, we have people to take care of that. They'll do their job, you do your job, and I'll do my job. Well, Richard, you don't understand. They're storming the White House. Oh, in that case, I better call out the 3rd Marines. You can't, Richard. Why not? It is the 3rd Marines. Oh. <laughs> They can look at my face and read out an order to fire me. So we said, Foxtrot, Tango, Alpha. Fuck the Army and the Navy and the Marines! And we're, we're led to believe today that Jane Fonda was this person that just absolutely shat on American soldiers. Yeah. Um, and if you're, an Ameri- if you're an American of any red blood, you're going to like celebrate when Jane Fonda dies. Right. It's really, she, she, I think, I mean, it's, it's one of the supreme ironies and maybe the most American thing that the American government could kill millions of Vietnamese people in the 1960s. But what we, we remember is that a 28 year old actress was shitty. You know right. what I mean? Like it was that we care that we put that on the shoulders of like a woman and a woman right. who like tried to stop it. Like right. that to me is amazing. And it's like, you know, it makes me wonder and ask like, you know, how many Vietnamese children did Jane Fonda burn right. with napalm? You exactly. know, like all of that. And so like the, Fon- the, the Fonda story is incredible. And I, I guarantee that when Jane Fonda dies, whenever that happens, you know, the, all they will print about that is yeah. like how, how much she was hated. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, if you she go sat back, on a tank, is that what it was? She yes. posed on a... Yes. But, yes. but you're adding another level to that because there's the irony there, but then you're actually adding another level, which is that, and she was beloved by some soldiers. Yeah. Not only some, tons of them. Ton, and yeah. so, so many of them that the American government was concerned, you know, and concerned right. about her. And of course they, they had her, you know, tailed and followed and et cetera. They knew she was a danger. Um, right. She was a, and, and the celebrities, you know, that's another lesson for us, right? Like, we're thinking about Trump. Yeah. Like, the left needs fucking celebrities. We need, like, we need figures. And what I don't do you mean, mean we have Deborah Messing? Yeah. <laughs> who who uh, tweeted that Bernie's like Judas, by the way, the other yeah, day. I'm not kidding. She's our Angela Davis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's funny, because I don't th- think about Deborah Messing, except as, like, you know, a sitcom that was on a long, yeah, long time Will ago. Yeah, Will and Grace, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but we do have, I mean, we have... 
all celebrities hate Trump, but but you're saying that we need celebrities who actually yeah. I don't mean like hashtag resistant celebrities, yeah. and I don't necessarily mean celebrities who are famous for movies. I just mean like people who are who have that thing, you know, who have that right. kind of charisma. And I know that like Occupy Wall Street was horizontal, and we're not supposed to have leaders, right, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yes, but, but we're not like... going to reinvent the wheel either. It <laughs> right. reminds me of the thing when you were saying personality politics. Like, yeah, it'd be great to not have those, but we do. So let's just get good people on our side right. and do the policy stuff too. Right. I mean, it's it's good on Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. She and Gab, um, Tulsi Gabbard and Ro Connor were the only people to vote against that paygo thing. Right, right. That was just disgusting. I can't believe yeah. it. It makes and, me really And I mean, really but ashamed. Bernie Sanders has been the only voice against a lot of this shit forever. I right. mean, there's there's like a really haunting clip of Bernie Sanders like during the run up to the um to the, the first Gulf War in, yeah. in like and he's like the only guy standing there like everyone else has like left. And it's just like one guy, Bernie Sanders in 1990 saying that like this war is going to, you know, destroy our country. And everything he says is absolutely fucking true. Yeah. And nobody yeah. listened to him. And it's right. like that's a frustrating part of it because for me, I like I hear that, that you know we've got AOC now and these others, but I'm like we need like hundreds more. Right. You know what I mean? We need like we, because I feel like they're always going to be these these like lone radicals against all the other fucking assholes in the Democratic right. Party who are like, no, let's vote with the Republicans. Right. But they but yeah. they change the the discussion, right? Which I think then does become a politically powerful thing yeah i mean everyone's right. talking about 70 right Medicare now and for, like right. yeah and that's that that to me like it's it's weird because it's clear that like the the mainstream media is all like horny for aoc and it's really gross you know like that right. dancing video and everything like that but yeah. like that part of it like capturing the attention um is is part of of this like i don't know trojan horsing the ideas Right. Yeah, I totally like. I want more uh, voices like hers because I I, I fear for her well being. Like being yeah. In, uh, yeah. a celebrity like this is uh, it's a terrible burden. To yeah, have and every moment of your life, like nitpicked over, yeah. and every yeah. quote uh, taken out of context. Um, so Although yeah, so far I she's like tough ones. Right, right. Yeah, it, um, she every, needs yeah. she needs supporters. She yeah. She and and I mean I guess that's our job allies, too. like coworkers. Yeah, yeah. not yeah. just us, but like people in the government. Yeah. yeah. Right, uh, and people and people in the media who are actually gonna like um, right. I don't know get her back. Or, uh, you know, it is have her funny back though because yeah. yes, it's true. I mean they vilify. It is funny because <laughs> going back to that Trump thing, it's like. Even the people who hate her, they're so obsessed with her that they give her media, and she's so good at it yeah. that it always backfires, and her tweets just, like, slay. Yeah. Um, I can't believe I just said slay. But, um, and just I just want to say something because I want to insert stuff about this, um, about the 403, because I interviewed one of those 403 people is my uncle's, late uncle's really good friend and good friend of my family's, and uh, I actually spoke to him a little bit about it. Nice. Um. Yeah, he was one, and he went to jail for three years. Wow. And they were actually, yeah. there were three of them, and one was Dennis Mora, one was David Samus, and one was um, Jimmy Johnson? Yes, James and Johnson. Yep. James Johnson, right. I yep. know him as Jimmy. Um, and what was but, great about them is they were like kind of this multi-ethnic Exactly, crew. black, yeah. white, and Latino. Yep. Actually, Dennis was half Spanish, half Puerto Rican, but that's neither here nor there. Um, because anyway, that was back when Spanish people were like considered non-white anyway right, but he right. yeah that's a whole other discussion and you, what what about the sorry i cut you off yeah well what i was going to say is that you know one element we should that people should know about this is that you know that that the the, the what was happening in the military wasn't just about the war that like there was a racial thing going yeah. on in the american military that 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 just like all the other 
kind of movements that emerged in the 1960s and 70s, they came out of the civil rights movement. Right. And, they, and they took the they took the kind of um, uh, strategies of the, of the civil rights movement. They took some of the, the language of the civil rights movement about power and freedom yeah. and things like that. So it was important that, like, there be this kind of, like, racial solidarity um, among people against the war, and that's what built it. Like, the war built racial solidarity. So, like, the Fort Hood Three are important because they signaled that, that blacks and whites— uh, and Latinos, in, in, men serving in the American military, could actually get along and could get along um, a, a, around like being against the war. That was an enormously terrifying uh, prospect for the American military, who did their best to can, uh, kind of like foment racial hatred, and that's a part of the story too. Right. Yeah. Dennis yeah. told me Dennis Moore was saying that even you know as much as he was critical of the military, obviously because he went to jail not to serve in it, but it was one of the most integrated horizontal places he had been in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's yeah, that's an important part of it. For yeah, sure. not to make this the whole the Katie Halper family ass show, but <laughs> where it's funny you brought up Vietnam, um, the first Gulf War, because we have an interview we're releasing with my mom Nora Eisenberg, where mm-hmm. she talks about um, because of Bush's death, one of the things that really still hasn't been covered and is never covered is the first Gulf War, which, like you said, Sanders was in the minority um, in opposing, because even today it's still t- spoken about as if it's the good war. Right. Right. And it's really disgusting. Um, yeah, and it's weird because, uh, you know, the, 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 to, 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 to take that back to Vietnam is that a memory has a lot is important, and the way we remember this stuff is wrong. And so we're right. kind of living in this alternate reality that's not real and not, and not like, kind of aligned up with what actually happened. And I think that dissonance is a really, you know, important part of, like, our historical moment because you have this, like, the Vietnam War was— now, you know, everyone is against the Vietnam War. Like Ken right. Burns, you know, it's like, oh, well, the Vietnam War was this horrible tragedy. It was wrong, it was wrong, it was wrong, it was wrong. And it's like, well, the only people who said it was wrong during the 1960s and 70s were radicals because right. liberals supported the war. They were the architects right. of the war. Right-wingers said that we should actually sit, drop nuclear bombs. We should have gone even further. Right. The only people who were absolutely right about what happened in Vietnam were the radicals. And the people who were writing underground newspapers, who were who were in socialist organizations, who were fighting against the war with everything they had, and now liberals are acting like they're the ones that were against it, and like yeah. they always they always were, and it's like it's just bullshit because you know to me that was part of just to go full circle understanding American politics and that there was a left. Right. It was like learning about the history of the Vietnam War and not understanding that it was liberals that did it. And right. like understanding like the role that JFK played, that Lyndon Johnson played, and how they tied the like Vietnam War into the larger liberal ideas that they were that they were connecting to the great society, etc. Understanding that the Vietnam War was a liberal project was a really big moment for me to understand American politics and understand that there was a something further um, and and a critique of American politics that went beyond liberalism, and that was the left, and they're the ones that have been kind of erased from the history of the Vietnam right. War, but they're kind of the key part uh, to, to understand it. Yeah. And what was it that made you see that, like the that it was a liberal project? Well, I mean, that's honestly, that's just literally kind of my, my early part of graduate school is going into like learning the actual history of the war. I mean, to right. me, it's, it's not that it's not that hidden, but uh, but kind of understanding. I don't know, like I, the, one, one of the things I saw early on that explained it to me is da- uh, Daniel Ellsberg. Who they, you know, he was the guy that that yeah. that sn- uh, smuggled the Pentagon Papers out, um, and they just made that awful fucking Steven Spielberg movie, The Post, about. Oh yeah, um, I heard that which was awful, they, yeah. yeah, it was terrible. Um, and it, and they make the heroes to be like the uh, Catherine Graham and like the owners of the Washington Post. Right. And shit. It's like really gross. 
Um, because there were people that took real risks and went to jail, and it wasn't the, like the rich uh, newspaper owners who were the heroes. Right. But either way, there's a moment in the Peter Davis documentary Hearts and Minds where Daniel Ellsberg just explains how the Vietnam War and like the larger Cold War that it was a part of were like liberal projects, and I that's you know that's something that everyone should know, but I didn't know that for whatever reason, and like understanding how much the Cold War was kind of put into a positive vision of America's global role in the world you know and like all of that the the fact that they felt that they were doing the right thing while they were kind of yeah while they were yeah um you know creating the machinery to essentially commit um one of the most profound genocides of the 20th century that to me is a fascinating thing and it makes me you know not trust liberals ever and and understand how deeply embedded they are in the kind of imperial project and 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 the military industrial complex yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Raythe- working at Raytheon, if you're a worker there, if you're just thinking about how strategic and tactical your weapons yeah, are, and yeah, you're yeah. minimizing body counts by just uh, targeting that one wedding. Yeah, right. exactly, and that's—I mean—that's Robert McNamara and the yeah. kind of like whiz kids and the whole—the whole liberal notion of like it's—you still hear it with Silicon Valley, right? That we can like innovate and we can yeah. like find ways to make this um, concentration camp much more efficient and much more woke, <laughs> and yeah. like you know that shit. Like it, I think that when I see those—I mean, you've probably seen the tweets of people clapping their hands saying like we need more women prison guards and like that kind of shit. Oh yeah, you know that's important. I think that gets at a really important like kind of idea which is that liberals kind of have used for many years the kind of cover of like they're the good guys and they use the and they talk right and they use the right language which is incredibly elitist first of all but like they use that as cover for what they're really doing which is like again they're separating they're using that bureaucratic language and that positive bureaucratic language to separate um, themselves from from what they're really doing, which is creating that horror. Yeah. I like to call it a rainbow capitalism. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. a top and a diverse totally. top ten percent instead of a, a straight white um, male one percent. Mm-hmm. But also, just want to. This is a great way to go out. I think uh, Rachel Maddow tweeted the other day: all three <laughs> CIA directorates will now be headed by women. Yeah, and and what does that get us? Slay right? queen, literally yeah, slay queen. I know, yeah. and and th- that that to me is just so fucking stupid. And and at the same time, you know, I don't want to be the guy that's like out there. No, it's really, well, it's, I'll it's do such it. A, yeah, you do it because it's such yeah. a, it's such a trap, right? It's such like a if woman, I'm like, yes, oh, yeah. fuck you, sexist. Rachel Maddow, yeah. yeah, and I look like an asshole because I right. don't support Gina Haspel. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean, who's like a fucking how tor- could you not recognize her? Monger. Yeah, how could you not recognize what a female? How many doors she's opened for for opportunities for women to torture? people yeah right the How glass ceiling you? the glass ceiling goes right into a gas chamber yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's yeah. Hor- it's horrifying and it's bullshit and anyone who has any critical faculties is able to see right through it. Right. But at the same time, you see how this shit is weaponized. Because I if, know. If and Nira Tandon is listening to us right now, she's going to be like, oh, how convenient for you to hate women. Right. You know exactly. what I mean? And, and it's like, okay. And then she'll also lie about history and be like, don't you know it was the leftists who um, uh, helped the Nazis rise to power right. and the yes. liberals were trying yes. to stop them? Yeah. Did you know that national socialism is. Yeah, so- exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. that stupid shit. Alt left. Yeah. That's really frustrating. And I mean, I. I, 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 I I don't want to be like the guy that's always like the fact checker, you know, because yeah. I, I don't but think you, that's a good way for the liberals yeah. to win right now either. But yeah, it's no, a really frustrating yeah. part of it. Yeah. 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 Um, if they're going to be elitist about it, um, we, we might as well be just providing the facts yeah. um, instead of elitist liars. Right. Anyway, we're elite. <laughs> we're elite 
truth tellers. Yeah, um, there's one way of putting it. Yeah. This was so great, though. Thank you so much, David, for talking to us. Thank you. I appreciate it. I never get to talk about myself and my work so much. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> yeah. all, all the questions. Yeah, oh, for sure. Oh, great. Yeah, we can do, we'll do another one, too. Um, I love your show. And Thanks. everyone And everyone should too. listen to it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, great. Have a good night. Bye. You too. Bye-bye.